Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn, and you are listening to Rethinking EDU. I'm super pumped to be here this fine evening with my co-hosts, of course, Matt, Julie, Janine. Julie, how are you feeling tonight? Well, the home stretches in view. We have our eighth grade graduation ceremony tomorrow, so I'm looking forward okay. to connecting okay. with my students and then some time to regroup and process all that has happened. Oy, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Janine, what about you? You're feeling okay this evening? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, my, my, my own kids have officially started summer, so... They, um, yeah, they, they thought it was a great idea to take the tarp off of the tractor and turn it into a slip and slide. Um, they're all covered in rashes now. So <laughs> that was a learning experience, I guess. <laughs> all right. I assume that you mean they turned the tarp into a slip and slide and not the, the tarp. Tractor, yes. Right? The... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Just got to make sure, you know, Matt, how you feeling tonight? <laughs> well, just got back from the beach, even a couple minutes ago, the sun, kayaking, swimming, just uh, a great way to bust out of the quarantine, just feeling a lot better. Cool, cool. And I have to say, I'm pretty excited this evening because our guest is Tom Vander Ark. Tom, how are you doing this fine evening? Hey, Mike, I'm doing great. Uh, we're, we're suffering through a little bit of June gloom here in uh, Seattle, but uh, all good. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I can I can imagine. Um, my sister used to live outside of Seattle, and she was always telling me that it was June gloom. But <laughs> maybe that. <laughs> hey, we have the we have the hundred glorious days coming up, like July, August, and September. <laughs> this is the nicest place on the planet. Nice, nice. That's awesome. And Tom, I gotta say that uh, when Matt told me that he had reached out to you to join our podcast, I was like. Yeah, Tom Vanderark, he's like too busy. He's got all these other things going on, you know? Um, and it pretty much he's like as about as uh, education celebrity as you get in our circles. You know, if you're if you're talking about people who are doing really cool things in education, like Tom Vanderark's top of the list. And so when Matt wrote back to me, he was like, Mike, I think Tom's gonna come on to the podcast. I was like, shut up. This is not actually happening. So I'm really excited that you're here. Hey, I'm I'm happy to be here. I heard that you guys were rethinking uh, education, and, and I wanted to join. And um, I I love Pennsylvania. You don't know this, but I started my career in Pennsylvania as a coal miner. Oh, Get I out of had no idea. Wow. I did. I was on the obviously I was on the uh, western side of the state, but I worked in um, okay Washington, Pennsylvania, and uh, Morgantown, Waynesburg. Yeah, over there in um, in uh, West Virginia and then all over Eastern Kentucky, but I had a I had a whole career as a coal miner before education. Well, you probably what? got some good stories to tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story, I'm sure. And there was a there was another career in um, retail. I was a Costco competitor for six years between coal and education. So, okay, okay, I had, <laughs> I've had my a strange and yeah. wonderful life. Absolutely, yeah. I had my stint in retail. I was a an assistant manager at a Starbucks for a number of years in Detroit. Uh, that was a great job. Um, learned a lot. You know, you learn a lot when you're when you're trying you to do. sell things to people. Customer <laughs> service, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I want to just give a quick overview of who Tom Vanderark is. It's going to be quick, I promise, because I hope if you're listening to this, you have some familiarity with his work. If not. You can check out his stuff at Getting Smart, which we'll put a link to right in the podcast description. But Tom, you've been working for uh, with Getting Smart for a number of years. You got a bunch of books out there. You also used to work for the Gates Foundation as their executive director of education. Um, and I just kind of want to dive right into a little bit about what that work with Getting Smart looks like. And I tried to be a public school superintendent before that. Oh, interesting. Okay, where were you? Where were you a superintendent at? Oh, Federal Way is the district between Seattle and Tacoma. One of the most uh, diverse zip codes in America. Huh. Interesting. Wonderful, complicated, uh, great place right on the Puget Sound. But um, unlike eastern cities, um, you know, Seattle and Tacoma are super expensive. So it pushes poverty into the suburbs. So you have these interesting, um, global, diverse. Uh, suburbs, so it it really makes our uh, schools interesting and wonderful. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a another whole conversation too. But um, so now you're you're part of getting smart. This you know group of um uh I you know I hate to use the word 
think tank, but and that's not exactly what it is, but it's a group of people um, working with schools and often alongside schools to we try to we try to help educators figure out what to do next. And we do that with uh, we call it advocacy and advisory, but uh, like consulting and uh, and then uh, we run campaigns around emerging ideas to help uh, educators sort of understand the new context that we're living in. Right, right. And you can you kind of walk us through what that looks like? Like, who are some of the schools that you're working with? And um, what are some of the initiatives that are kind of at play? And I'm sure there's a lot of them. So you can just give us a couple examples. Sure. Uh, headlines are we're, we're helping 25 school districts in Missouri and Kansas um, uh, in the Kansas City metro area add more real world learning to their high schools. So internships and client connected projects and entrepreneurial experiences and college credit opportunities. It's about 100 high schools, about 100,000 students. And uh, we, we used to do school visits for all of those folks. Uh, a couple times a month, we'd go to a different city. Now we're doing them all virtual. Um, Friday morning, we're getting together with all the superintendents to talk about reopening uh, schools in the middle of a pandemic. So um, th that's one example. We, we do a lot of work with the 18XQ schools, um, next generation schools that all uh, received large grants a few years ago. Lab schools trying to reinvent the future. Uh, we help school districts design new schools. We're doing, uh, we do strategy, strategic plans for school districts to figure out what to do next. Uh, we still do some work in ed tech uh, and help ed tech companies with product strategy and go-to-market strategy. Um, we work with a lot of school networks. I wrote a book called Better Together two years ago about uh, the power of school networks. And uh, so we, we still do a lot of work with um, networks helping people um, in informal and formal arrangements uh, get better and sort of invent the future. I think Julie knows a little bit about Better Together. Yeah, Julie? Yeah, that was one of my plugs. <laughs> I well, appreciate that. It's kind of a wonky inside baseball book because it is about <laughs> school networks, but it is. I mean, our our contention there is that the stuff that you guys do every day is really hard. Right? We're trying to we're trying to create new learning outcomes around things that really matter for young people. We're trying to create new learning experiences. We're trying to create school models around those new learning experiences, and we're trying to get a tech stack support those experiences, and then we're trying to build community around those and. Doing any one of those things is super hard, and we have school teams trying to do like all five of those simultaneously. It's just monumentally difficult. So, right. our contention is do it with other people like-minded heading in the same direction. Tom, what does the infrastructure within Getting Smart look like to be able to handle what you just described? It looks like my it looks like my daughter, <laughs> uh, Caroline. Caroline is our uh, president. She's uh, my daughter. She's led the organization. Uh, my my wife actually uh, started it with my younger daughter twelve years ago. Okay. Uh, but my my older daughter Caroline has run it for the last decade, and um, she's um, brilliant force of nature, and uh, just has a, a, an amazing team around her um, of educators, um, diverse backgrounds. Half of them here in Washington, half around the country. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's who we are. Cool. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I noticed the Vander Ark name a couple times popped up, uh, as I was just perusing through who the team is with you yeah. guys. But, but what a, what a gift for an old guy to be able to work with your, um, you know, my wife and, uh, my daughters, I'm just glad that they like, let me hang around. It's really <laughs> that's, cool. That's awesome. Um, there's been a, been a lot of talk on your website and uh, your podcast about the pandemic and even the current protests uh, surrounding the killing of George Floyd. And there's been a conversation oh. about how that will reshape the education system. I was just wondering if you'd be able to take uh, you know, a moment or two with that in mind, talking about the areas of education that you think are in greatest need of change and you think will actually change as a result of this pandemic and the protests. Wow, that's a great question. There's like a book length answer to that question right um, <laughs> yeah we want to try to keep our episode to like 45 minutes matt come on man all right all right <laughs> Sorry. Um, it, but, it, but it's the question of the day right so yeah yeah um so you know i've been writing about this trying to figure it out um i think 
the current challenges that we face um, in, in, in pretty vivid detail what, what needs to change. Um, all the inequities in our existing system have really come to light. Um, the districts that serve low-income communities usually get less money. They have worse infrastructure. Uh, they serve families that, um, that don't have access to technology and that don't have broadband. Um, so needs to change is we need a foundation of, of equity where where schools that serve low income communities get more money, not less money, which is more common in America. So we need it's change. We need governance change. We need uh, weighted portable student funding that recognizes the, the needs, the challenges, the risk factors that kids bring to school every day. Ubiquitous broadband uh, everywhere in America, rural and urban. That's just like uh, like electricity. In terms of what will change, um, things that I think hope will change. Um, Matt, are um, SEL, PBL, and CBE. Um, I, I hope that when kids come back to school, we pay more attention to social emotional learning. We really reconnect with them and create a sense of belonging and that every school really prioritizes uh, social emotional learning in a, a new way that really makes it important in the culture and in the classroom and the way that we uh, communicate to kids and that we equip them to speak about their own abilities. Project-based learning um, and interest-based learning, we've had a lot of kids that have done a lot more interest-based learning in the last two months hope we invite kids to do more work that matters. And that means listening to, to voice and choice, extended challenges. Finally, um, competency-based education. I, I hope this fall we don't just kids in the next grade or the next class and hope they do okay. Some are gonna be a year ahead, some are gonna be a year behind. I hope we do some thoughtful diagnosis in the, the first few weeks and then build more agility into our systems that allows us to Meet kids where they are, help them set goals for where they want to go, and and support their growth, and then not try to cram a lot of level content, quote unquote, um, in them whether they're ahead of that or behind it. I want to dig into that just for just for a minute, Tom. So I know that we've uh, each of us have worked with schools and teachers um, to different at different capacities and have. At least in my experience, I found it really challenging to encourage schools to change um, along some of the lines that you're talking about, right? Even in my own school, I, it's difficult to get past the question of, so what we're doing right now is working because our teachers are good teachers and our kids are responsive kids and we have supportive parents and all this sort of thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what we're doing in our school is really the best in terms of long-term um, possible results for kids. And so you're talking about encouraging kids to make active decisions in their educational processes, learning from the space that they're immersed in, wherever that might be, um, you know, setting goals and reflecting on those things as they're going. And I think people can get sort of a little comfortable in, well, not a little, a lot of comfortable in <laughs> their past education experiences and then the education experiences for their own children and say, well, this seems to be okay and it's going okay. So I want to ask how, how you think we get into really showing schools and helping schools understand that um, learning could continue the way it always has, but it's really in the betterment of the student and the community if it changes? How do we do that kind of work? The conversation uh, and go visit other schools. Those are the two, hmm. the two answers. Um, I'm really excited that um, thousands of communities around America have held Portrait of a Graduate conversation. Portraitofagraduate.org is a, a website from Battelle Kids. Mm -hmm. uh, but whatever you call it, if, if you conversation. Tony Wagner uh, taught me this 20 years ago. He was my district coach when I was a superintendent. If you have a community conversation and just ask, so how has the world changed since you were in school? 
result, what do you think kids need to know and be able to do? Given that, what kind of learning experiences and environments do you think they need? We've had that conversation in hundreds of communities and in every case, resourced or not, it has really come together around a, a, a beautiful agreement around a new set of priorities, really support change. And to get a sense of what's possible in terms of learning environments, visit schools. You know, I've had, I've had the amazing fortune to visit 2,500 schools around the world. And uh, it's just been life-changing because it, it really does expand your sense of what's possible. When my friends at Singapore American School launched their strategic uh, transformation years ago, uh, they had 100 faculty members visit 100 of the best schools around the world. And it just, it it lit that a fire uh, under that faculty and, and they've really formed that 4,000 student uh, school. So have community conversation uh, and then get out and see what's possible. Yeah, I, I love that suggestion. I uh, did a school exchange with a fellow counselor um, a couple years ago and we wrote up an article in uh, the educators room um, which is a publication I've been writing for for maybe eight or so years called The Transformational Power of the School Visit. And part of it um, talks about how the school visit can be a really affordable form of professional development, right? You can collaborate to discuss a framework for your visit, set some goals with with another peer, and then advocate for maybe even just a day away or even a half day away at another school that is doing something interesting in even in a nearby district to um, where you work. And you know, if you look at a lot of places around regions, you can see little pockets of really amazing schools doing really amazing things. And I think as educators, it sort of behooves you to connect with other educators in your area and take a step out of your own building and say, um, hey, what are you doing over there to teach social studies better? Or what are you doing to engage kids in their iSearch project like Julie and Janine do? And then go there, see it in action, and say, what can I take away back from my own practice? And really uh, look to see how you can transform your, your, um, what you do based on, uh, based on what you see. Is that kind of what you're getting at, Tom? It is. Let, let me give you a Pennsylvania answer. Um, this is a, a Pittsburgh answer, but I love the nested networks um, over there that are just create some of the best school districts in America. Um, out by the airport, you have Montour and South Fayette and Avonworth, and they work together in the in the uh, personalized learning network districts that uh, really support each other in the move to personalized learning. They're all part of League of Innovative Schools, the national work of some of the most innovative schools in America. They are also um, uh, big players in um, learning uh, sponsored by the Grable Foundation, which started in southwestern Pennsylvania and has moved into other regions of the country. So these are nested networks that have really lit those districts on fire, both connected them to um, emerging practices, but also allowed them to share their best practices. Yeah, that that's awesome. I love it. Um, so schools, I'm thinking about the summer, um, schools having the opportunity, I'm going to call it an opportunity, uh, <laughs> to design uh, new learning experiences for students. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's Growth right. mindset, right? Um, so... Tom, I was wondering if you could highlight some of your favorite schools or programs that you think teachers and teams should look to this summer. You know, who's oh. doing it well out there? Um, all those things that you were talking about with social emotional learning, about project-based learning, about um, competency-based education. Um, where where can schools turn since we probably can't um, have to make this up this summer? Um, so we probably can't physically visit well, maybe we can. I don't know in some places in the country. Uh, but where could we go to find out more information? What do you think? Oh, boy. Start, if you just high schools to uh, worth visiting, you'll find my blog list. I think I have another list called uh, 85 um, uh, elementary schools worth visiting. So starting there's a good place. 
there there are just great great schools all over the country all over the world in fact um i can i can mention a few but i, I would say that in most schools there are actually really cool things happening so don't forget to walk down the hall and look at your neighbor who's doing something really cool or to uh across the street um see what's happening because there, there's I just take um, take take uh, you guys are in in Philly. I mean, SLA Science Leadership Academy is one of the best schools in the world. And I I love that school for the beautiful example of a group of teachers that have come together around a set of they call them values. I would call them sort of guiding principles that are just evident in the practice in every single classroom, a place that honors the the voice and choice of of young people. Um, I, I love what Big Picture Learning, uh, bigpicture.org has done around the country. Young people are out in the community doing uh, internships two days a week, all four years of high school. Um, EL Education, uh, their network of project-based schools. I love how they start their morning off with crew. It's all based uh, on relationship and then Expeditionary learning. New Tech Network has 200 great based schools around the country, all team taught, integrated, interdisciplinary learning. I love this new crop of design focused schools. We think design thinking, a structured problem solving approach, is really, really critical set of it's a it's a methodology and a mindset for walking into complexity. And we think every school should have a approach to design thinking or computational thinking that's shared across the curriculum. So to see that in action, onestone.org uh, in Boise, and Tech High in, in Redwood City, California, um, th those are two of the best examples in the world. Or in Boston, U um, Studio is a, is a cool, um, and a micro school. Those are a couple of the schools and networks I'd start with. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, here's my 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 hardball question on that one, Tom. If you um, if somebody was like, I really want to visit one school in the world that's really doing amazing things, and and they said to you, I can go anywhere, but I can only go to one. Where would you send them? You might as well go to the Bali Green School because then you're in Bali. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say that because that was totally. like, that's, that's my, my thought. I was like, man, I think I would go to the Bali green school. I wonder totally. if Tom thinks. <laughs> I, absolutely. Like, and then, and then you're in Bali and you take a couple of days. That's, that's a, uh, that's a totally remarkable place. I, I mentioned Singapore American school for a big school. I'm really innovating. I, I appreciate a lot of what they're doing. Um, I've been to a lot of great schools in, Scandinavia, mm, yeah. But I'm puzzled. I'm always puzzled by the school, or is it the context variables? Right? Is it the right school supports? Is it the the communal culture, or is it the pedagogy? And it's the nested answer to those things that I find puzzling, vexing about uh, visiting schools there. In uh, down the street from you in in Washington D.C., there's a bunch of great great schools. I love Horace Mann. Mm -hmm. It's in the northwest part of town, up by American University. Beautiful place based example. Uh, they've got gardens in the lobby. They've got gardens in the roof. They've got gardens in the yard. And they really invite young people. When they think about a something like, or in science class, they'll walk outside and they'll look at a drainage ditch and then follow that to a stream and they'll follow that to the Potomac and then they'll follow that to the ocean. So they're thinking about um, ecosystems sort of local to global, um, beautiful, beautiful uh, e example of center-centered, community-connected, project-based, uh, based education with a super diverse group of uh, learners. Yeah, that's that totally is awesome, yeah. And just out of curiosity, sorry, Julie, I know you got another question, but um, just out of curiosity, have you visited the workshop school here in Philly before? Love it. We've written about the progressive schools. Um, so really, really appreciate all, uh, appreciate all of those. We, we love what Building 21 
doing and trying to create what I'd call a diploma network for schools that share an outcome framework and platform tools and learning That's awesome. experiences. Workshop is a is a beautiful place. Appreciate the, the the partnership that uh, Big Pictures created with the city and the housing authority in a new school in a in an old building. Um, yeah, great examples in town there. I know that you are uh, a champion of place based learning or seeing the community as a classroom. Uh, do you have any ideas for us for what that might look like, especially if the virtual learning becomes uh, the new norm? Who knows what's going to happen in the fall, but um, I know thinking about like PBL and small groups with one teacher, staggered arrivals, uh, blended classroom experiences, can't do field work, um, even remaining virtual or in and out this fall, who knows? Um, yeah. <laughs> Any ideas about that? So let me start by plugging um, another one of my favorite schools, Teton Science School. It's in Jackson, Wyoming. Most beautiful places on the planet. Yeah, I um, took kids there a few years ago. It's absolutely it's incredible. amazing, right? Yeah. Crazy. It's just like walking into a painting. Right. <laughs> so so this is the most sophisticated school network in the world when it comes to place-based education. They run this cool outdoor program. They have fifteen or twenty thousand kids that run through their outdoor program like you did. And, uh, in the last two years, they've stood up a national network of rural micro schools called the, the Play Schools Network. It's really a trifecta around place-based education. Um, I learned a lot. I, I joined their advisory board about four years ago and I learned everything I know about place-based uh, from them. And we use their design principles to organize the um, chapters of uh, Power of Place, the new book uh, that just came out from from ASCD, it's you know it's weird. We started writing this book three years ago, and then for it to it came out the day that the WHO called it a, a global pandemic. Suddenly, in this weird, unexpected way, we were all learning in community, learning from community. So, in some respects, it's it's more relevant topic than ever. The, the you know the question is heck do we do with it next fall is really a good one. Many of us will be limited or have new constraints around the kind of field trips that we can take. I think of uh, Cross Sound High in Memphis, um, great in an urban, uh, ur vertical urban village, kicked off their English and social studies block last September with um, a driving tour of um, all the neighborhoods of Memphis and then allowed every student to pick a theme that they saw that they were troubled by. And then they used design thinking to turn those into projects and turn them into research and then written and oral presentations. But just doing that sort of field trip is gonna be challenging in the fall. So we're gonna to have to get creative, but what, the things that we can do, it, the last time that I was at Newview Academy, uh, Newview Studio in, in Cambridge, we went on two two studios, went on the same walk. First walk, the young people um, were using GIS and GPS to catalog and set of databases to catalog demographics um, and economic data. Really close attention to who owns what and what is it worth, you know, who lives here and who's not here. And and that launched the, re and so they, they walked a block and, and set a, a set of these questions and then dove into those questions. And in the afternoon, a science class did the same walk, and they were charting smell, studying uh, the olfactory system, and they charted the type and duration of smell. They came back and they built a, a data visualization based on their smellograms. So th these are two super simple um, examples of it doesn't have to be fancy. Just go outside and walk around and invite kids to use a different lens. The next day, walk around the block and think about art and architecture. Just think about attending. What are you paying attention to today? How can we reflect on that? What can this place teach us? Uh, originally a geologist by training, what's the sedimentary layers here? Lived here before. What did they leave here? What can they teach us? What am I seeing that uh, I owe to them? These simple walk around the blocks can um, be really, really powerful experiences that help to see where they're from in a much much richer sense and and begin to think i think of this computational thinking of what 
the data behind that problem that I'm observing? What's the data behind the water problem that I'm seeing? What's the data behind the homelessness that I'm observing? So we can make place-based learning uh, work. We just have to be creative. We probably have to do it with physical distancing and masks on, but but we can and should try to take advantage of uh, the place that we're in. I don't know about you guys, but I think I need to make some smellograms. Sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was that some some young people actually built um, models and some built um, graphs and some built three-dimensional um, digital models. So it was super fun to see data visualizations that came out of that. But I love connecting art and and science in that way. Yeah, I, I love that idea of just the, the, the simple walks. Um, we had our, we have a, pro a hashtag power, power of place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The power of place. We, we had our, you know, here we are, we're learning virtually our, our sixth grade program um, focuses on the seasons. And so the students, they, they were, they were told to go outside, find some signs of spring, take a picture. They didn't have to know what it was, but they, you know, and then everybody showed their pictures and together they all talked about, you know, what they found and what was it. And, you know, we're looking things up together to try and identify different little creatures and flowers and stuff. And, you know, so it was, it can, there still can be meaningful learning experiences, um, even if you have to do it virtually. <laughs> yeah. And listen, not everybody's got a, a backyard uh, that they can mm -hmm. play around in or a park across the street that they can, but it can be as simple as just looking out the window at the same time every day and uh, just observing what you see and how it's different one day to the next. Yes. Yes. So just looking for little ways to connect with the world and, um, just being conscious of what you're paying attention to and what that moment and place can teach you. Um, speaking of uh, connecting with the world, I mean, I, I really appreciate um, just you sharing. You, you're like a wealth of knowledge with all these different schools that really are rethinking education and doing school differently. Um, you know, I think sometimes teaching can be such an isolating profession. Um, and then to, to hear that there are other schools, other educators that are, are out there doing it differently. Um, it's refreshing, <laughs> you know, and here we are in the middle of our podcast series, which is on networks. Um, and you, you had mentioned your book earlier uh, called Better Together, How to Leverage School Networks and Smarter Personalized and Project-Based Learning, which I read as a graduate student and, and loved and greatly appreciate. Um, you know, personalized learning is, is definitely one of my, my passions in life here and being able to, um, get outside of the classroom. Um, so I really think that that book um, kind of highlighted how the power of networking in the field of education um, really, you know, pushes this idea that we can't be an isolating profession. We have to be networking with other people. So I'm wondering what, what you have to say about like, how can schools leverage the networks and, and why are these networks so important? <laughs> oh, I had this station um, like five days ago. I tweeted um, now and to everyone that education is a team sport. I think in most schools for the last hundred years, most teachers could teach um, largely what they want, how they wanted, and that's all changed. Pandemic really changed that, and the, the need to quickly jump to remote changed that. So it's so if we're going to move to wise learning, trying to and and competency based learning, really trying to meet kids where they are, them co-construct a path forward. Have to do that in teams. You there, you just can't do that by yourself, and you certainly can't do that if kids are sometimes at school and sometimes at home. And, and just given the the flexibility that we're going to each have to exhibit as we go back to school under new and different uh, challenging dynamic conditions have to do it with a whole new level collaboration cooperation ability it's super evident you know uh, brian greenberg from silicon schools just released a report uh, based in part by the, the 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 big database that crpe the center for reinventing public education and he said uh, the the schools that responded really well to the shift to remote learning culture right they, they had a culture of values of shared practices and protocols and tools and they were able to shift in, in a day's time to effective remote learning so it, it was really the culture that was key and and we will need to see that in in every school creating a, a culture of trust respect collaboration and agility that's going to be 
job one um, everywhere. Yeah, I would really love to see, especially in Pennsylvania, I know where mm, property taxes really kind of dictate and district lines, um, you know, what schools are able to provide for students here. Um, it's, idi it's idiotic, right? It's just yeah. wrong. It's, it's racist. It's inequitable. It pits districts against each other then, right? Like, so instead of- No question. You know, making the, the most out of the resources that are available, throughout the community. I mean, it, it, there's like, I know in our area, there's a spot, there literally is the dividing line between between two towns. And it's like some of the kids go to the the better off school and some of those kids don't. And it's all because if you just live on one side of the street. <laughs> it's like, why can't this school come together for the betterment of those kids? Yeah. You know, we're the, we're the only advanced uh, OECD country in the world that does this. And the majority of, the, you know, the majority of rich white kids your schools get more money than low-income uh, African-American kids. Just it, it's as wrong as wrong could possibly be in every act. It's just uh, it's heartbreaking that we still in America rules that way. It, it's, it's blatantly racist. It's uh, it's terribly inequitable. It it is the the fundamental in in education today. And I appreciate your uh, strong language there. Sort of calling it out. Um for what it is and that takes uh yep. urge and accuracy and um you demonstrate both of those i i also wanted to circle back um to something you said earlier i didn't want to sort of interrupt the flow of the the conversation but but you talked about the power of a conversation within a community and and what ca what that can do and it's sounds uh so simple but i've been involved in education for a bit now and it's uh it's sort of upsetting how rare it it happens i just wanted to of get your insight into um sort of how that can happen and and what you've seen as a result of that simple conversation within a community it's a, it's a great question um i was in in uh, africa a couple months ago and i did uh, workshops called how to innovate without getting fired and this was for i need that kind of workshop <laughs> independent school heads <laughs> a lot of uh, independent school heads uh, from all over Africa, all over the world, in fact, they have a particularly, um, particularly difficult problem in this regard because they, they serve um, a weird mixture of um, low-income um, low kids and then um, kids of, of diplomats. And it's often the affluent parents who have privilege a, a gilded pathway to college of choice, right? The selective college that don't want things to change. And, and so in school districts in America, they are often the protectors of advanced right. placement and and gifted programs that, that create uh, pathways of privilege. Only way forward have community conversations and for district leaders to understand the, the needs and interests of the community. I, I'll, I'll give you a, a super quick example. In my fifth year as superintendent, I thought I was smarter than the community. I, they, they hired me because I, I gave these wonderful answers to, to really complex problems. I, I said, I don't know, but here's how we might think about it together. And they said, oh, finally, somebody that'll listen to us. My fifth year, I got arrogant and I didn't want to build another big comprehensive high school. I told my community over my dead body, are we going to build another big comprehensive high school? <laughs> and so I, I ran a bond for this elegant proposal for new, small, community-connected high schools. It, it's, it's exactly what communities are talking about doing today, but it was it's something that I just made up and sprung on the community, and we ran a bond, and I lost bad. So the lesson there was you either have to give the community what it wants or you have to lead them to a new place. The only way that you lead them to a new place is in, in a conversation, and I think the conversation that you have with them is to ask them to reflect on their own and what's happening and how their work is changing, their life is changing, and as a result, what they really want for their kids. You have that conversation, changes things. It builds a set of agreements and support uh, innovative work. It helps you understand as a system head whether there's a best approach or whether you need um, a portfolio approach, a variety of different kinds of schools for people that have different sets of, of aspirations. If you have a, a portfolio agreement in your community, then the work is how do we create equitable access for every child to every type of, of school option that we want to have in our community so that it's accessible in terms of location, transportation, enrollment, and funding.
there, there is no way forward uh, not to do the better work, the innovative work that we've talked about today without being in dialogue with your community. The, the new work as an education leader is to be a conversation leader, a conversation host, a temporary agreement facilitator. I think that's the most important work of a, of a school leader today, the ability to facilitate agreements that keep your school community moving forward. I still don't know of any education in the country that teaches those skills. It ought to be a conversation host and a, an agreement crafter. Yeah, that's fascinating. And what a challenging skill set. So, so if you live in a if you live in a diverse zip code like mine, then then you're talking to the United Nations. So you, and talk think about the cultural competence that you need, like me, that for an old white guy to to step into a super diverse place and hold and trust those diverse community interests. That's the new skill set. Right. Right. Well, I think that kind of leads uh, me into our second to last segment, which is a little bit of a reflection on this conversation. And co-hosts, I'd love to hear from any of you what this conversation is pushing you to rethink about education. I've got probably a dozen thoughts in my head. Somebody should go first. That's not me. <laughs> uh, I can go first. Um, I'm I'm gonna go with with keeping it simple. Like that that idea of the simple walk, I think, can apply in a couple different contexts. So, being yeah, sure. Asking your students if you're, if we're teaching virtually again online, or whether we're back in the classroom, but we have to, we can't go on these. We we go on like twenty fieldwork experiences throughout the year. We can't go on those anymore. Um, yeah, get outside your classroom anyway. You can still go on a simple walk, and you can still you know explore the world around you and take in data and make learning interesting. And I think on the same note, take a simple walk with a colleague or somebody from a different school and have a conversation and. What are they doing and how are they handling the situation? And again, um, just kind of like your book says, you know, we're, we're better together um, than we ever would be alone. So yeah, those are my takeaways. Love that. <laughs> Making me uh, think about, um, you know, the logistics of the fall um, and thinking about how we don't have to recreate the wheel, um, that there are schools out there doing it well. And I definitely will look into making those connections to see what I can learn. Go ahead, Matt. What are you thinking? I'm thinking a lot. Um, my first, <laughs> too, my first thought is just, uh, just thankfulness, you know, to be able to have this uh, conversation. It's, it's a really nice um, blend, right? This conversation has, has casted a vision to sort of think and dream big, but it's not just theoretical. Like, I really appreciate the way that it's practical. And you have, uh, you've highlighted those, like, there's three things that are sort of sticking out in my mind, like have a conversation, right? build relationships. You don't have to go far. Like when you were talking about the Singapore American school, I, I've actually been following that school and I'm like, yeah, I got to go there. But no, you encourages us and reminds us you can just go right down the hall and there, there's going to be cool stuff going on in your school, even if it's not Singapore American school. So that's good because a lot of times we make excuses. I know I make excuses like, oh, I can't do that. Right. But no, we can have a conversation with a diverse member in the community. We can build relationships with people and we can walk down the hall and interact. So, so this has been really great. Thank you. I love that, Matt. And there's lots of things, of course, that I'm thinking about, but probably the, the top thing that's sticking out to me is that, you know, we're in this, we're in hopefully what is the tail end of a pandemic here. We are experiencing large volumes of civil unrest in the United States right now, and for good reason. And the thing that I think that schools maybe still aren't asking themselves is who's sitting at the table right now as we're making these decisions for what school looks like in the future. And I know lots of school leaders that I've talked to that I've asked, so you have parents at that table? Do you've got students at that table? What about your... Um, what about your students who qualify for uh, free lunch? What about your students who are from communities that are really significantly far away from where your school center is? You know, you got to really think about when you're having that conversation, who are the other members that are engaging in that conversation with you? And if you're not doing it right now, when are you going to do it? You know, there's no, there's no time like right now where you can schedule people in Zoom conferences that are like sitting at their houses 
and say, let's talk about what education um, could be to do just what you're suggesting, Tom, which is construct a, a set of temporary agreements that we can all come together on and say, we know that we want our kids to be blank, right? And start to sketch out that real live portrait of a graduate that exists from your school with all of your community member impact, uh, input. But it requires a leader to step back for a second and say, who am I talking to right now? Am I talking to the same 10 people that I always talk to? Am I talking to people that I may have only had one phone conversation with ever, or this certain group of people that I know needs more attention and care, particularly with what's happening right now in the world? Um, Tom, I would love to hear your thoughts when you're either based on this conversation or just in general, how are you rethinking education these days? Let me answer that in a, in a super specific way. There, there are hundreds of decisions that will be made about your school, about your school system in the next 70 days. And they're gonna be made by well-intentioned people that have never been here before, that are making more decisions, more difficult decisions, um, probably an order of magnitude more than they've ever made before. And so even when they're acting in good faith and doing what they think is in your best interest and the best interest of your learners, many of those decisions are gonna be system-centric rather than learner-centric. Many of those decisions are gonna lead to old routines and, and uh, as opposed to um, customized, personalized learning. So I think each of us have a really important leadership opportunity in the next uh, few months. Just wanna remind everybody uh, that's listening that you have more power than you know. You can lead in a larger sphere of influence than you have been. Uh, you you have an important voice. You have uh, important experience. I just wanna encourage everybody to look for ways that they can lead and to both support and provoke um, the decisions that will be made soon uh, to be to make school a place that is more about thriving as a human being, that is more about meeting young people where they are, that is more about doing work that matters both to young people and community. We can bend this complicated arc in a way that is that makes our schools more humane. Um, more productive, better places to learn and better places to work. But we we each have some work to do in the, in the next few months. Sorry, I just got to write down some notes here. Hold on just a minute. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Tom, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that parting gift there. Um, I think it's so important and such an important message for any teacher or really anybody that's listening to this podcast, teacher or otherwise, you know, how are you stepping up to be part of the decisions that are happening in the world around you right now? What are you doing to literally cast your vote? What are you doing to um, figuratively cast your vote, right? How are you getting involved in the decisions that are impacting your community? Because they're gonna impact you, whether you want them or not. Let's get into our last segment here um, to share some plugs. I'll kick it off this time. Uh, I've been um, upping my Instagram game recently. My dog has an Instagram and she's been a little bit on hiatus from Instagram, but I've been um, following some really awesome people on Instagram. One of those folks that I've been following is an educator from Columbia named Chris Emden. He's got a very popular book um, that came out a couple years ago called uh, For um, White Teachers Who, um, I'm not going to remember the title off my head, off the top of my head, but anyway, I'll get back to that. I'll, I'll record that later. He's got a really popular book that came out a couple years ago, but he's also really active on, on Instagram. I'll drop his handle in the uh, podcast description. It's at Chris Emden, that's E-M-D-I-N, super inspiring uh, educator and education leader. Uh, Janine, what do you want to plug tonight? All right. Well, I think I mentioned it before, but I'm all about open educational resources. Um, I think that teachers should collaborate and share and uh, network. Um, so there's a, I think, 
a, a wonderful resource that all educators should be um, registered, you know, sign in for. Um, it's called OERcommons.org. Um, and you can, you can explore what other people have created there um, as far as educational resources. It's basically a public digital library of all open educational resources. So you can, you can find stuff on there for lessons or activities or project-based learning, whatever you're looking for. You can create stuff and share it with other teachers and you can collaborate with others um, you know, and come up with ideas together with other people as well. So oercommons.org, uh, very, very cool site to, to check out. And you'll have to pay for most stuff. Let me let me plug that. Um, every school's gonna have every school's gonna have less money to spend next year, and so please, before you buy books or renew your uh, premium content subscription, uh, please check out oercomments.org and the other great OER sites there. Um, be really really picky when you uh, decide to pay for content because there's so much great. Uh, free and open content out there. Tom, you want to add another plug other than OER Commons? Oh, I was just thinking about my Instagram. I've been cooking my butt off for <laughs> 90 days, and I have a I have a vegetarian cooking site called uh, Epic.Veg on Instagram, so check that out if you want to see. I try to post a beautiful creation every day. Over at TVanderark on Instagram, I try to post a beautiful picture every day. That's amazing. Um, it, I've <laughs> I find that it, um, both trying to cook something beautiful uh, and, and tasty every day and trying to find a, a visual image we're sharing with the world is um, changes how I pay attention to going through my day. Uh, and I think that's a great habit of tuning your awareness. Um, I think that's a great habit to have these days. Awesome. Matt, what do you want to plug? Uh, um, speaking of open uh, resources, slides, yearbook, dot com it's a it's a really cool project um so people can make a yearbook for free uh it's free software using google slides and all these templates that were provided and then you can just print it out at uh you know a print center and a lot of times you get your yearbook printed out for like nine bucks um if you utilize that um free software through slides yearbook.com super cool all right julie what do you want to plug i'm gonna tap into that instinct for activism we all have um i think if we interviewed a thousand teachers, a thousand would say that education is not equitable. And it seems to me that many are seeing this a reality with new eyes, at least. Um, so COVID certainly has laid those inequities bare and the protesters across the country are demanding that we open our eyes. So um, if we asked, you know, all teachers, all of them would have ideas about policy changes, funding changes, structural changes, but more often than not, we do not have a seat at that table. Um, but if teachers are feeling like this is your moment, I recommend reading How to Be Heard and Lessons Teachers Need to Advocate for Their Students and Profession by Celine Coggins. Uh, it helped me understand how policy is advanced, um, why things seem to bend toward the status quo, and how to engage with leaders from legislators to local leaders. Um, not something that a lot of teachers are very familiar with, so it, it really helped me understand how to do that. I recommend that book. Awesome. Awesome. Listen, Tom, again, I can't thank you. I know the rest of my co-hosts are super grateful for your time this evening. We truly appreciate it. And um, to everybody listening out there, I hope that you guys took as much away from this conversation as I know that we did. We've all been sitting here a little quiet at the end because we're like, man, so many nuggets of great wisdom in, in this conversation. So many things pushing us to rethink education. If you're listening, head on over to iTunes, um, download our pod, uh, leave a rating on iTunes. It really helps. And otherwise, thanks for listening. We appreciate it.